In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus called the crowds with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them take up their cross and follow me. So, a little bit of quiz time, a few things I want to point out in this verse that I find pretty interesting. So are you ready? Okay. Does anyone remember what Jesus says when he calls the disciples back in that first chapter of Mark? Anyone? Okay. This is a... <laughs> this is good. This is good. You're all going to end up doing the 50 days of Mark with us then. We're all going to read the, the gospel together. Um, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. That's what he says. Do you, do you know that? Okay. Okay. How about when he calls Levi the tax collector in chapter two? He's not fishing. No, 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 that's, that's later. That's later. That's good, though. That, that's, that's in the gospel. He said to him, follow me. Okay, so just think about that. Okay, next little quiz. Has the cross been mentioned at any point in the previous seven chapters of Mark? In any way? You, can, you have a 50-50 chance, friends. <laughs> No, it hasn't. Okay. Has Jesus, before this chapter, talked about how he is going to die? No. No. Now, good. You know what? Thank you. I think our kids in the after school and stuff, like in Sunday school, they know what they're talking about. Okay. Um, Friends, there's a huge shift that is going on in this part of the gospel. A real change in what Jesus is asking of his followers right? His chosen disciples readily drop their nets to follow Jesus with the promise of fishing for people, making followers. That's all. He said, come drop your nets and follow me. Levi left his job as a tax collector. He was a cog in the empire wheel in order to follow Jesus. And now in front of the multitudes, Jesus is saying to folks, in order to become my followers, you are going to have to take up your cross. It's a big change. And the cross was universally understood at this time in the Roman imperial occupied territory of Judea. It was understood to be a painful, prolonged public death at the hands of the empire. So for Jesus to say those, to those assembled that this is what you're going to have to do, You're going to have to take up a cross, right, to follow me. This is really, really heavy. You know, the threat of terror and execution to all inhabitants of this part of the empire was ever-present. So that part is not the change. They knew what the cross meant. But what Jesus is asking people here is pretty radical. Come follow me as we pave a new way of living in the midst of this oppressive empire. Come follow me and lose your life because in doing so, you're going to save it. This is not a theoretical, spiritualized invitation from Jesus. 
He knows what he is asking of those assembled because he knows it is what God has asked of him, of what he is now walking towards. He hasn't mentioned the cross before this, and yet he knows the cost of the gospel for himself. He's just revealed for the first of three times that cost, his suffering and death, as well as the victory, that death will not have the last word. So the question is, is the promise of a saved life enough of a draw to those listening to Jesus that day? Is it enough for those of us listening 2,000 years later to be willing to follow Jesus in opposition to the destructive imperial powers of our time? Last Friday, I woke up to the news that rocked me to my core. Um, that Alexei Navalny was rumored to have died at a penal colony in Siberia where he was serving his sentence for treason and crimes against the Russian state. I had hoped that the rumors would be disproven, but just a couple of hours later, his death was confirmed. And yesterday, his body was finally released to his mother after, after having been laid, held by the Russian government for well over a week. His mother had publicly demanded that her son's body be returned to her. And she knows, and Navalny's wife knows, and we all know that he didn't just suddenly suffer from a heart attack. That he was probably, most likely, surely, killed by the government for his continued work of resistance in spite of being moved to Siberia with no warning. He could not be silenced. So, how many, of the, how many of you have watched the documentary Navalny? I mean, wow, two of you, three of you. Okay, me included. Anyone back here? No? Okay. Uh, friends, it's amazing. Uh, if you don't, you all know who Alexei Navalny is? Okay. This, this, this documentary is fantastic. Uh, short synopsis. Um, it's, the documentary is about the poisoning of Navalny that happened a few years ago. Um, he's flown out. He's able to be flown out of Russia. Uh, it's about his recovery in Germany and his effort to expose that it was, in fact, the government who had ordered his killing. And it's quite extraordinary. Uh, watching the moments of levity and laughter in life in the midst of the dangerous work he and the followers he has recruited were doing in exposing Putin and the Kremlin and their assassination attempt. The documentary builds up to the moment that Navalny decides to return to Russia. He made a choice. He decided to board a plane and get back on, he'd go back to Russia. He had left Russia only a few months earlier in a coma suffering from poisoning of a nerve agent at the hands of the government to whom he's now flying back to. And we see him returning. We see the plane being diverted. Once it crosses into Russian airspace, it lands, not in the place it's supposed to. We see him being taken off the plane, and he is arrested. Everyone involved, including us viewers, know that this is going to happen as soon as he chooses to go. He made the choice to return. He made the choice to be arrested and suffer at the hands of Putin and the Kremlin. And he must have known that he most likely would die returning to his homeland. 
And last Friday, he did. And I kept seeing headlines over last weekend of stories that some, something to the effect by the reporters, why would he have returned? Why would he return? And it seems like the right question. Why sacrifice his life? His family, not being able to see his children grow into adults, the possibility lost of holding grandchildren. And I spent a lot of last weekend thinking about Navalny and his life and his sacrifices and his choices. And it also made me think of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his life and death and the sacrifices that he made to answer the call to freedom, justice, equality, and love. And if you read or listen to King's final sermons, King has a feeling that he's not going to be around much longer. And while he did not die at the hands of the government, he died at the hands of imperial forces that did not want him upsetting the status quo. Most of us will not ever be leaders like Navalny and King, and that is totally okay. Most of us will not have to risk our lives the way that they and other leaders in the fight for freedom, justice, equality, and love have. And that is okay. And we still have work to do. We still have to work, we still have work to do to figure out the ways that Jesus is asking each of us to deny ourselves. We still have work to do to figure out how Jesus is asking us to take up our crosses and follow him. We still have work to do to figure out how Jesus is asking us to lose our lives in order to save them. You know, there is a great temptation to say that this message is for a select few who are really capable of giving their lives over to a cause. And I personally think so often of my friend, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who is the co-leader of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, and I think about her carrying on King's work, and I can feel really, really terrible about myself. Uh, that, you know, she is called in this way to follow Jesus, and she has given up so much, denied herself so much. That's not me, right? And yet, Jesus didn't just say this to a select few who could do that kind of work. He said it to the crowds, because he knew that many, not a select few, are needed to build up God's kingdom on earth. He knew that many, not a select few, have to have faith in God to believe that light overcomes darkness, that love overcomes hate, that life ultimately overcomes death. So friends, we too are called. And during this time of Lent, we hopefully have the time and space to consider what it means to deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to lose our life to gain it. While these three things might seem separate, they are ultimately very intertwined. It may feel like we are already denying ourselves of so much. And friends, advertising would tell us that we shouldn't deny ourselves of any worldly pleasure. We are getting that message all the time, everywhere. But Jesus is talking about a different type of denial, one that puts God in the center of our decision-making instead of ourselves. 
which is part of what our Lenten practice is all about. Do I deny myself of scrolling through social media and instead spend that time praying, listening to a reflection, going and buying some food to put in the pantry? Do I deny myself the feelings of anger and self-righteousness at another person and instead consider that that person or persons may actually be doing the best that they can? Maybe I'm going to pray for them or remember that God loves them just as God loves every one of us. Do I deny myself that really awesome sweater that I've bookmarked and instead consider what else I could do with that money? It's in our practice, our integration of our lives, of what Jesus is calling us to do and us trying to do it, which often inform, in, involves a form of self-denial, that we begin to realize that we can fill our lives with life-giving things. If any of you have taken up a Lenten practice, ask yourself, how is it going? How has it felt to do something different with your time? How has it felt to deny yourself? And, so this might be a little bit of the different part, what has gone in place of what you have given up or you're denying yourself of, right? Because that part is really, really important. It's not just about filling it. If you've been scrolling and stuff like that, maybe choosing to turn on the TV is not the thing that you should be giving space for. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. As we get into the heart of Lent, it's important for us to recommit and reflect. Are there ways in your Lenten practice that you have felt more enlivened or connected with God? Okay, maybe you're asking yourself, because sometimes Mother Sarah and I ask this question about, you know, are you feeling connected to God? And everyone's eyes kind of like glaze over. I have no idea what that means. Um, so that might be a new language for you to consider. Um, so here's, here's the question. You might consider when are the moments, and I mean moments. I'm not talking about hours. I'm talking about moments. This Lent, in your practice, that you have felt at peace or awe, or wonder, or love. Maybe that's about connecting with God, those things, right? And so I'm hoping that you'll spend some time reflecting this week and seeing the ways in which you are answering Jesus' call to follow him, denying yourself, and making more room for God and for life. Other people may not understand why we make this choice at all. It might seem crazy to them, and they don't have to understand. We might not understand the choice that Alexei Navalny made or Martin Luther King Jr. made. They need not have explained their choices, right? We don't have to try to explain. Because it's in our actions and the lives we lead in making this choice that the light and the love that emanate from us bear witness to the building up of the kingdom of God on earth and allows us to experience what it truly means to gain our lives. Amen.